The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob M. Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. Sue Kalinske has been off for a few shows. We used Andy Kamenitsky for one. This one's going to be solo. Sue has been dealing with some personal stuff. She's on vacation. Don't worry. She's going to be back uh, soon. And great guest today, Anthony LaPaglia, great actor uh, who's in the show Florida Man. We talked to Clark Gregg about that uh, last show. Uh, this time, Anthony LaPaglia. I thought I would take a minute and tell you a little bit about my radio background. A lot of people will say, I sat with a TV news director uh, two years ago or so. I won't say who it was. And she said, do you have any regrets about your career? Do you wish you would have done more TV? And we joke about that on the radio show, obviously, Ireland and Mason will do anything to be on TV, all that stuff. The truth is, no. The truth is, I love radio. And I loved radio since I was a little kid. I've got this big pop culture hole in my frame of reference, which is music from the 70s. And it's because while my friends were listening to Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all the classic rock from that era, I was listening to talk radio, love talk radio. Um, I used to stay up literally all night. My parents didn't know it, but I would keep the radio on all night and I would listen to guys like Larry King and guys like Tom Snyder and there was something about that intimate connection that you get from radio that you don't necessarily get when somebody's reading a prompter on TV. There's a free-form, personal connection that develops between you and somebody who's hosting a show. Even now, you know, even if you're in the car and you're listening to Mason in Ireland, it's kind of just you and us. And we're, you know, kind we're kind of friends, right? You know a lot about us and we find out a lot about you. And, you know, Larry King, I get to work with, um, got to interview him a bunch of times, just a, a an incredible interviewer. The thing I, I loved about Larry is that Larry always said, yeah, you know what? I don't read the book beforehand. I don't watch the movie beforehand. I want to know just as much as my audience knows when I have a guest on. I want to be surprised. I don't want to be inside. I want to make it really accessible. Now, I don't subscribe to that. That, And I, with all due respect to Larry, feels a little lazy not to read the book or watch the show. But that was his style. Um, I worked with Tom Snyder. 
after watch, listening to Tom Snyder for years, when I was a little kid, I snuck downstairs when Tom Snyder was interviewing Charles Manson. And he interviewed him from prison. And it was a really big deal. It was on the Tomorrow Show. And uh, I, I was just fascinated by that. And I loved Tom Snyder on the radio, loved him on TV. Uh, and in fact, when I started working with Tom on the Late Late Radio Show, I went to the Radio and Television Museum in Beverly Hills, which if you've never been to, you you got to go. You can basically dial up any show in TV history and watch it. So I did that with with Tom's shows before I started doing the Late Late Radio Show. And the Tomorrow Show was, I mean, there was nothing on at 12.30 at night. Or was it, maybe it might, might have been one o'clock in the morning. I think Larry, yeah, I know. I think that uh, Johnny Carson was on from 11.30 to 1, an hour and a half, and then Tom Snyder was on from 1 to 2. So it was really the middle of the night. And it was free form, and it, he was smoking cigarettes. I don't know if you've ever seen this stuff, but it's incredible. Um, so I go to the Radio and Television Museum, and I pulled up this episode that he did with Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, uh, of course, the famous book. And I, I was just fascinated by it because Tom was a Catholic, devout Catholic, went to Marquette. Um, and by the time he was done interviewing Ayn Rand for that hour, Tom was like literally questioning his own faith, his own Catholicism. And there was a rawness to it that you don't get on even, even radio, certainly television today. Um, television, nighttime television is kind of all prepackaged and sketches and all that stuff. This was about conversation. And I said to Tom, when I got to work with him, I said, boy, I loved your interview with Ian Rand. And he said, let me tell you something, kid. When I walked into that studio, I didn't know if Ayn Rand was a man or a woman. Knew nothing about him. And I was high as a kite. And it is a fact that Tom, in addition to the cigarettes, uh, was well ahead of the curve when it came to cannabis. So we were, we were kindred spirits even back then. Uh, but no, I love radio. I don't love doing it solo so much. I find it to be awkward. I like sort of being the conductor in the room. I do that on the radio show where I've got Greg and I've got Jorge and I've got John and I've got maybe a caller and I've got maybe a guest and, you know, you're sort of conducting the room. Solo is really different. I've done it some, but it's not my favorite thing. And because of that, I'm happy that Sue Kalinske will be back soon, hopefully on our next show. So uh, solo today, my guest great actor. He starred in movies like Betsy's Wedding, The Client, Summer of Sam, The Guys, and on and on. He was the star of the TV hit Without a Trace, which aired for seven seasons, won him a Golden Globe. He won an Emmy for his work on Frasier, and he won a Tony Award for Arthur Miller's A View from a Bridge on Broadway. His current project is Florida Man. It's on Netflix 
Anthony LaPaglia is here. Anthony, thank you so much for doing this, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, no, no, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we'll definitely t get to Florida, man, which is great. Loved it. Binged it in one weekend. Uh, but I also want to talk about your life and, and your career a little bit, uh, which is uh, an amazing, amazing career. Thank you. You came from pretty humble beginnings in Australia. I mean, you worked at a shoe store in Adelaide. Uh, when you were growing up, did you always have your eyes set on on acting? Where were you in plays at school? Where did that passion come from? To answer that question, years years uh, later, um, I met someone from my high school, like maybe uh, 30 years after I left uh, Adelaide. And they said to me, um, she was actually my drama teacher. She said, you're the last person I ever thought would do this for a living. <laughs> I used to duck the class. I was, I was just interested in soccer and playing soccer. I didn't care about uh, uh, theater or drama or any of that stuff. And so I ducked the class all the time. And um, I ran into her name was Miss Dathis, uh, Greek heritage, I think. And she was the drama teacher. And she reminded me of just how, how much fun it was not to have me in her class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it, was a, it was an afterthought in my 20s. Now you were soccer was a passion of yours, right? Yeah. You were a goaltender. Tell me about your your career. Uh, there's nothing to talk about, really. I uh, I had I showed a lot of promise when I was about 16, 17, 18. I peaked, I think, um, and it just kind of didn't work. It wasn't working out, um, and, and I could see it. That's the one thing I would give myself credit for is that I, I still have that ability now is if something's not working, I can kind of see it and accept it and try and move in a different direction, which is a gift in life, I think. But even back, I realized now back then I had the same kind of intuition going on. I just knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. I wanted it to very much, but there were too many indicators <laughs> pointing a different way. So you talked about intuition. Is intuition part of how you choose uh, a role that you want to play? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Every role is different. You know, like I think if most actors were honest, they would say some jobs are for you. you, you, you there are things that you really love and you want to do. And some things are for the mortgage. Yeah. Uh, you see, you know, somebody's offered you uh, a ridiculous amount of money to do something that maybe you wouldn't do if you didn't have a, a commitment that, that you knew that that job could help clear up. It doesn't mean you do a lesser job. I still, would put, I still put 100% into it, but I know that my motivation is different for saying yes. But once I say yes, I'm committed. Yeah, it's funny. I interviewed Viola Davis uh, yeah. a number of years back when The Help came out. And uh, her next movie was something called Divergent, which was sort of a teen science fiction thing. And uh -huh. I said, so, so what, do you, what do you see in this role? She says, uh, Mama wants to get paid, <laughs> which, which <laughs> I thought lovely. was very honest. She's lovely. We, she and I did a movie together, actually, years ago. 
And uh, she was, uh, uh, before either one of us were really kind of doing anything. And uh, she was fantastic. She was, back then, you knew. Like, you work, with, you work with certain people and you go, oh, they're going to do great. She just, she just had that thing. Yeah, she definitely has it for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, she, and she's gone on just to be like powerhouse and like, you know, TV, movies, theaters. She's just great. What do you think it is about somebody that makes them a star like that? What is that? What is that thing? I don't know. Uh, if I listen, if I actually knew the answer to that, I would quit acting and I would represent actors <laughs> and I would just get rich off of selling that. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the, what the, um, what the unknown factor is. What makes you want to watch? I don't know what it is that makes you want to watch somebody or not want to watch somebody. I'm really not sure what that is, but I know you can't teach it. You can't teach it in a class or a school or you can teach. Um, because people always ask me about, about can you learn acting? Well, yeah, technically, you can learn how to get through a scene and not hit the furniture and say your lines. But does that mean it's interesting? Does that mean, does that mean that you, you're, is that acting? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's getting a bit esoteric, but it's a very tough question to answer because it's one of those professions that you really can't define. Yeah. If you think about your favorite actor, you know, and, and I asked you, why is that your favorite actor or why is that your favorite actress? I, what would your answer be? For, for, you would probably have about five or six actors that you love. Yes. The answer would be different for every one of them, right? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Peter Bogdanovich used to say that one of the things that all great actors have in common, this is kind of silly. He said they all have very large heads. <laughs> I think that was just his large head talking. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. That's a bug out of his things to say. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me laugh. I haven't noticed that particularly. But maybe it holds true. I don't know. He knew He he knew a lot, for sure. He did know a lot, but he also, like, you know, he fucked up an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. So tell me about tell me about Broadway. You went to you went to Broadway uh, in a view from the bridge. Um, yeah. What yep. what's your first night on Broadway actually like? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's you basically had. I'm about to do it again. I'm not doing uh, view from the bridge. I'm doing death of the salesman. And um, it's. I said to my wife, she said, well, how do you feel? I said, I'm thrilled and I'm fucking terrified all at the same time. What role are you playing in Death of a Salesman? Uh, Willie Loman. The role. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, which I've always wanted to do, and the good news is, is that I'm old enough to do it now, and the bad news is, is that I'm old enough to do it. <laughs> yeah, right. It's all wrapped in one. Uh, but I think I've... I, 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 when it came across the desk, I went, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And I really want to do it, so I'm going to do it now. That role is kind of a, a rite of passage for great, great actors, right? Uh, some great actors have done it. Um, yes. Um, I think that 
actors that have accepted that they're going to age really look forward to playing that part. Yeah, yeah, right. Like I've always wanted to play that part and I've always been kind of okay with aging. So, so the I have two a friend. Now, the I, two I, have now collided, so it's good. I, I have a friend who's done, you know, a bunch of Broadway and, you know, it always amazes me to do – he did a show called Network. You're going to do uh, Death of a Salesman. It's eight shows a week. How do you – how do you bring something new to it every time you play the role? Well, you know, something I, I what, what I remember from, I did it for a year um, with uh, View from the Bridge. And the thing that kept it interesting was that I never got it right. There wasn't one single night, one single performance. Well, maybe one or two out of, I don't know how many in a year where I felt like I nailed every single part of the character in every part of the play. Some nights I would get the first act right and not the second or the third act right. Some nights I'd get the second or the third act right, but not the first act right. So it was always this constant juggling of getting the right pitch. Am I going in the right way? Am I coming in too hard here? Am I going out too hard? Am I going out too light? So there's this constant kind of um, finessing that you're doing like it's like you're tuning an instrument in a way and and it's and the thing about doing it for an audience is that the audience is the collective audience is part of the performance you actually feed off of some actors say no but i don't really believe them i think you feed off the energy of an audience hmm. if you walk into a if you walk into a space and there's you know a thousand people there to watch you it's impossible not to be affected by that energy. Some some nights the energy is crackling and exciting, and it, that helps you. Some nights it's very kind of we just came from a big fat dinner and we're tired, so entertain us. And then you go, well, fuck, okay, I'm going to wake you guys up, which yeah. is different. You know what I mean? So every night so, is different. Every single night is different, and and there's always. I just think there's, especially with the more complicated roles, there's always a challenge that you never quite, there's some moment, there's some line, there's some interaction with somebody else on, on, on stage that you never quite nail it down. And that's the thing that, well, for me, that's what happens. You said, I really want to have one night where it's perfect. Mm -hmm. Just one. One night was perfect, and that 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 did happen once on View from the Bridge, and I remember I still remember that night particularly, where it just was everything was perfect. Hmm. But it was a combination of the play, the actors, and the audience, and the right chemistry between all of the elements. Yeah, yeah. When do you, you know, uh, premiere in uh, in Death of a Salesman? That's going to be. Um, uh, I'm doing it at the State Theatre in Melbourne. Uh, uh, I go to into rehearsal no, in about in about two months. I go into rehearsal. Wow! And I do it for we rehearse for five weeks, I think, and then uh, we're up for about two months. So it's a lot. Of, I, I haven't done it for a while. So yeah, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, Appropriately scared shitless. 
So you've worked with some incredible directors, film directors. Uh, I have. I'm very lucky. Theater and film. Yeah. Uh, Spike Lee and Woody Allen and Sam right. Mendes on Road to Perdition and Joel Schumacher. Yeah. And I want well, to, what, what do all great film directors have in common? Uh, they actually don't. Um, each of those, when you mentioned those guys, they all have their own specific genius, I call it. Like Sam, Sam Mendes is, uh, is a guy that can massage a performance out of you more. Mm -hmm. Spike leaves, Spike was more direct. Uh, Joel Schumacher was a lot more... Uh, I really enjoyed working with Joel a lot. He was very, he was very uh, flamboyant and stylized, hmm. and he wanted a certain thing in a certain way that didn't require acting. It required hitting the mark the right way, in the right light, with the right attitude. And if you could do that, you you do great with him. But if you if you insisted on hanging on to your uh, your method of acting, you would probably suffer. Hmm. I find that as an actor, you need to be uh, flexible because all the directors um, in their own way, they have to be really flexible because you're not the only actor working on it. Right. So they've got their own method of how they want to get stuff done. Some directors don't want to talk to actors at all. They find it annoying and a pain in the ass. I don't blame them. And they want to <laughs> get into the editing room and just edit the fucking movie. Yep. And other directors want to really talk to the actors and leave all the technical stuff to someone else. So uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to rate them. They're all great at what they do, but it's specific to them. Take a Woody Allen. I'm fascinated by Woody Allen. Take a Woody Allen set. What is what's a Woody Allen set like? Uh, <laughs> I was uh, listen. I my my favorite story. I think is. Uh, I would get direction third party. It's like uh, he, I think he spoke to me twice during the whole shoot. Wow. He said, he said, uh, as I walked by him, he said, good morning. You look appropriately gangsterish, gangsterish today. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then the second time, uh, I was doing a scene in the car with Uma Thurman and his head popped up. From behind the, he was in the back seat. His head popped up from behind the seat. He said, "Can you guys act faster?" It's just too slow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it just made me laugh. Just that little head popping up from behind, saying, "Can you guys act faster?" It's too slow. <laughs> so, I guess there's a certain genius in that too. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, it was brief and to the point. But uh, you didn't really speak. You didn't really speak to Woody. He would speak to you, and if you wanted to get that message to him, you had to go through a third party, which yeah. was fine with. It's, listen, that shit is all fine with me. I don't. Care. However, somebody wants to work, it's fine with. You work with all kinds of directors, yeah. all kinds of actors. So you, you know? grew up in Australia, and uh, you've you've gone back to make films there. Yep. 
So I was, uh, when I was at the Olympics in Sydney, which by the way, is just a spectacular city and was my favorite Olympic games to, to be at and, and to cover. Right? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, but I learned about this thing called tall poppy syndrome. Oh yeah. Now describe what that is. And is, is that still a thing? Oh yeah. It's still a thing. Well, it's like this Australians in general, they really, they like you to succeed but not too much. <laughs> and if you succeed too much, then they feel it's incumbent upon them to bring you back down to earth. Um, and so they'll, they'll remind you where you came from, more or less, and chop you off at the knees a little bit so that you're not getting carried away with yourself, even if you're not, even if you're perfectly normal and down to earth. They feel that somewhere in your rise to, to fame, they need to make sure you're not going to be a runaway train of uh, of vanity and uh, self-importance. Yeah, That's yeah. Kind of the, you, basically, you know, it, it is it, it it is the visual. If you put your head up too high, they're going to cut it off. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So I want to go to this kind of heavy. In 2002, you made a movie called The Guys. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. a fire captain who lost man on 9-11. And it's been a few years since I've seen the movie, but I remember a really powerful film and really powerful performance that stuck with me. It was 2002, I think, when you made this. So yeah, 9-11 was still very, very fresh, and we were all pretty traumatized. What was it like making that movie? Well, it was interesting. I mean, I came into it because... Um, Sigourney Weaver's husband, Jim, uh, Jim directed it too. I, I can't remember Jim's last name. Anyway, um, there was a production of it that was going on at, at, at this theater. And the first two people to do it were Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray. Hmm. And it was a kind of, um, uh, it was a two-hander, um, uh, but you basically read off a script. And it was about the the uh, the fire captain and um, one of the survivors of the, one of the victims, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so Murray did about like uh, three weeks of it, and then um, I was asked to come in and replace him, and then Susan Sarandon came in and joined me. Wow! So morning. So I, I, and then a whole bunch of other actors replaced me and Sigourney, and it went on for about a year as a as a play, and then they were doing the movie, and I was quite flattered and shocked to uh, be asked by them to do the film, um, which was really difficult because um, we had no budget, and it. Uh, you know, shooting a play on film can be really tough. Yeah. And uh, so we did it. And about three weeks after we wrapped it, and we did it, we had to do it in 18 days. That's wow. it. Yeah. 18 days. We wrapped. About a week or two later, I get a call saying, we have to reshoot the film. And I went, oh, which part? They said all of it. Really? Yeah, we had so little money that we didn't have uh, – the director never had a chance to look at the dailies at night. 
and didn't realize that we were shooting with a lens that made everything soft around the edges. Oh, wow. And so none of the movie worked. So we had to go back and reshoot it. Uh, we did it in 16 days the second time. Were you better the uh, second time? Your yes. performance? <laughs> I want to say yes. Well, I've never seen the first one. But I think yes. I think because I had – but I already had a long association with it, you know, yeah. from, from play to movie and then doing the movie twice. Um, it was interesting. It was, it was like – I don't know uh, – it was a it was a difficult project, all the way, and I, I think it was it's kind of fitting given the material that we were doing. Yeah, yeah, it was difficult also. Like, I, 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 I think there were people there were people of of my my contemporaries who I think are still not recovered from it. Yeah, I don't think as a country we ever recovered from it. I don't think so. I don't. I don't think, think so either. I think we have like uh, PS PSDD, you know, yeah. like post traumatic stress over it, like. As a country, we seem to, uh, you know, because I was born in Australia, but, you know, look, I've lived here my whole adult life. I, I'm, I feel, you know, uh, I'm American. You know, I have an American passport. Yep. And I'm, like, very proud of that. Like, I had to fight to get in here. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like I didn't come here when it was all, like, easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. It was like when I came, there were no Aussies here, and it was tough to get in. Immigration was hard. And, uh you couldn't get, there was no like B1 visa or whatever the fuck that is. Yeah, yeah. You had to like scrap your way in. And uh, and I, and so I have a real kind of uh, pride in becoming an American citizen. And I still have it, even though sometimes you look around the country and you go, oh, fuck, Jesus, how much worse can we get? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a really kind of, you know, you know, just go, just looking at the. I'm so glad they fired everybody. I'm so glad they fired Tucker Carlson and they fired <laughs> John Lemon and they fired all the usual fucking panic merchants. And so we have to go through this cycle of crap about Trump again, which is all manufactured for ratings. Yeah. It's like I'm, I'm so glad Dominion is just suing everyone, so they're too busy to cover this shit. Yep. It's, it's just, I just. The, the media just needs to become when when did they become infomercials and not purveyors of news there's nothing newsworthy on yeah them. it's not news it's advocacy right it's like yeah. our side and so, your side I, I, yeah and and they're not doing anything you know as journal as a journalist I would think that one of the things that would be dear to you is the truth or at least seeing the other side of a story. Or seeing the other side of what you think is true and having some objectivity about it. Well, the problem is, right, there's there are three sides to truth, Every right? Story. There's my truth, your truth, and the truth. But now there's now there's now there's a four. There's a fourth wall. There's fake news. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like what exactly is fucking fake news? Seriously. Like it's either news or it's not. It's either a lie and a made up story, or it's not. It's the fake news is just the worst thing that ever could be thrown out as a generalization about news. Yes. And you would think that people involved in the news would want to, to, to rectify that. What happened to the Bob Woodwards and all those guys? The down you the know? middle guys, yeah. The yeah what happened Walter to Cronkite, guys? guys like that. It's not a, it's not one voice of fucking reason that you can turn to 
So they, so instead of, you know, so instead everybody just turns on each other, you know, there's no, uh, there's no collective agreement to be decent. Yes, I, I agree. Which I think, which I think is, this country is based on that. There's a collective agreement that would be decent to each other. That's not that fucking hard. Yeah, I mean kindness. Kindness, it's, it's exactly easy. it. It's decency. Like you don't agree with someone's opinion, that's okay. You don't have to make fun of them, put them down, or 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 shoot them. Yep, not necessary. Just agree to disagree and get on with it. So you let know? me let me get back on uh, on the. I, I I love this. Uh, by the way, sure. Uh, yeah, you did two very different TV series. You did Without a Trace. Yeah, seven yeah. years. You won a Golden Globe for that, and you did Frasier, which you won an Emmy for. You did an, a very funny arc on Frasier. Um, yeah. so something heavy, something comedy. Do you do you think about what your preference is? I think I like comedy more. I think I have more fun doing it. A drama is exactly that, drama. So you had to, you're in a different headspace. I think comedy is probably more challenging. You know, it's like, uh, what was that saying? <laughs> Dying is easy. Comedy, comedy is hard, oh. yeah. It is. Comedy is hard. I, I, I don't know. I enjoyed when I did Fraser, I think what I enjoyed most about it was that it was almost like theater. Like we did it live for an audience. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, not live on TV, but live for an audience. Yeah. And so the laughs that you got were genuine laughs. You know, they were, um, to me, it was like the ideal kind of combination of theater and, and, uh, and uh, the visual medium. Yeah. TV or movies or whatever. Um, I don't. I don't really have a preference. What? 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 Especially now, as I get older, it's more about who am I working with. That's what I look at more. Mm -hmm. Who am I working with, and am I going to have any fun? Yeah. Am I, I going to have any fun? Because um, you know, I did all the serious young actor stuff, and uh, I don't regret it. But um, I wish I'd had more fun along the way sometimes. And so now. I look at stuff and I go, I have actually looked at some stuff and gone, no, that's not going to be any fun. I'm not doing it. I can tell already. Right. You get good at, you get good at your radar for what's not fun. And I don't mind it being heavy material, but if I think the people involved are going to be not fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you can do heavy stuff and still have a good, good experience with people. But so, anyway, it's, so, it's really case-by-case -case basis. According to your Wikipedia page, and I'm, okay. I'm Wikipedia is often wrong, and there's stuff on there that. But I may have written. I may have written it myself, but go ahead. <laughs> so it says you met with David Chase about the role of Tony Soprano. I'm yes. curious how how close were you to being Tony Soprano? No, uh, not that close. Um, I was attached to the script for about a year, and no one would make it. Uh, not with me attached anyway. Um, and I, I tried to get it made. At the time, I had a deal with CBS and Les Moonvest was running CBS and I'd known Les for a million years and I took him the script. I said, I want to make this. Let's do this. And he came back and quite rightly he said, I can't do this here on this network. 
yeah. it's not a network show. And he was right. It's not a network show. And then, um, and then from there, I, you know, you, you can be attached to something for a while, and then you start to forget about it a little bit. And then I, I actually around the time I started rehearsal, I was about to start. I just committed to um, View from the Bridge on Broadway. Yep, and it came back alive again. And by then, it was um, it was just clear that he that. Uh, Mr. Chase needed somebody else, and, and he got exactly the right person. Jimmy Gandolfini, there's nobody else that should have played that role, not one person. He was brilliant in it. And, um, yeah, so I, 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 had a, I, had a, I had a little dance at the school prom with it, but it, it went on to marry the right person. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about Florida, man. Um, yeah. And uh, it's uh, – Clark Gregg was just on the show. He directed – uh, the the last two episodes of of the series. I like I like Clark a lot. He's a great guy. Um, yeah, he's funny as hell. So it's a crazy offbeat story. It is so Florida. Like when I hear a weird story in the news, or I read a weird, you know, odd piece, I always think, yeah. well, that's got to be Florida, and it always does turn out to be Florida. What is it about Florida? I think it's the humidity. <laughs> <laughs> I think because like I can't stand humidity; it makes me crazy. Yeah, so that's the only way I relate to it. I think it's the humidity and you know the ability to carry uh, 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 guns in, uh, openly. Yeah, yeah, right. That too. It's very wild west. You know, it's very. Uh, I mean, I'm, we didn't shoot there, but I've been there, and there is the kind of there's a much more kind of like laissez-faire attitude towards. Life, yes, and interaction with other humans, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's it's the perfect it's the perfect place for those stories to happen. So this show reminds me of I don't know. Do you remember the Soderbergh movie Out of Sight? Yes, it's kind of like this funny noir crime sort. Of, it it's got it's got that sort of vibe to it. Florida Man does. Do you yeah, think? yeah, I think so. That's a good analogy. That's a good – listen, it's got um, – I, uh, I don't watch – listen, I don't watch them. I haven't seen any of them. Really? You don't them. watch them? No, no. I did why, them already. Why, do you, why don't you watch them? Are, you're not I curious? Because I, I did it. I know the story. I get bored. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, I just – I don't know. I just never have watched myself. Uh, occasionally I watch myself, but I try not to. Um. And uh, I was, uh, and also because I'm in the middle of uh, what's that series I'm watching? So it's called, it, called Beef. It's called Beef. Oh, Beef! Yes, beef. yes, Beef Ali is Wong. fantastic. Ali Wong. Ali Wong, right? Ali Wong. Okay, so I'm, I'm addicted to that right now. I'm addicted yeah, to that. It's a great, great show. Great show. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've been watching that. She's like, she's really great at it. She's fantastic. So in uh, in Florida, man, you get to watch, you get to play a sleazy criminal guy after the yeah, sunken yeah. gold. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is he a in your mind when you play him? Is he a is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he somewhere in between? I think he's like. Uh, I try to play him like. 
you know, I'm more and more familiar with it now because, like I said, I'm closer to an age. But there's certain people that like get to a certain age, and they've kind of they're participating in life, but they're just marking off the numbers. They're not really involved in it particularly, unless something, unless there's something in it for them. It becomes a very like what's in it for me attitude. So he's kind of playing think, the angles. I think he's playing the angles, but I also think he's like emotionally completely kind of disconnected. Like he he he'd like to get back in touch with his son, but not that much. <laughs> as, long as, as long as it wasn't too hard to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you that uh, I know you haven't seen it, but Florida Man, it's great. Thank you. It, it really is great. And uh, this this has been great. Your career is amazing. I'm glad we thank got you. to get I, deep into I it. Really, I, I appreciate everything. And uh, thank you for making it an interesting interview. Absolutely. The series is uh, Florida Man. All seven episodes now streaming on Netflix. I watched it in one weekend. Completely worth it. Anthony, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And there you have it. Anthony LaPaglia. He's really had a career. I didn't, I didn't even get to most most of it. Uh, amazing, amazing career. And it's funny that he doesn't, he hasn't seen Florida Man. I actually have a hard time watching myself on screen also. I had uh, interviewed years ago, Jenna Rollins, who's one of my favorite actresses really of all time. And I interviewed her on the Tom Snyder show. And afterwards, and we really connected afterwards, she asked me, to be her date to a special screening of the movie Gloria, which is, of course, is her classic nominated for an Academy Award. And uh, we we went to the theater. It was the New Art Theater uh, in Los Angeles on, what is that, Wilshire? No, well, uh, Wilshire, Santa Monica, one of those. And uh, we she did a little Q&A before the movie. And then uh, she came to sit down. And she tapped me on the shoulder as the movie started. And she said, this is where I get off the ride. And she up and left. She said she never watches herself on screen. So Anthony is not alone. Um, well, listen, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the Culture Pop Podcast. Sue Kalinske will return for our next show. I promise. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe. You can do that uh, on Apple and Spotify. Uh, if you need some help getting to one of those sources, you can go to stevemason.com. There's always a really easy link there. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Appreciate it. And I'll see you next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.